0: podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Indie Lee, Indie Lee. I don't make statements like this lightly, but this conversation may well have moved me more than any episode of the Glow Journal podcast preceding it. Indy Lee grew up with a, a clear vision, a literal checklist of how she wanted her life to look. Two children, two yellow Labradors, a beautiful home and a fast-paced corporate job. She had ticked every one of those boxes before realising that she was, in her own words, a passenger of her own life, checking boxes rather than living. Indy decided to take a step back and leave work to spend more time with her children. But being a classic type A, her idea of slowing down somehow led to her working in and building a 750-square-foot greenhouse. In summer of 2008, Indy was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, meaning that she could no longer work in her beloved greenhouse. She was dealt another blow later that year in the form of a brain tumour, with one doctor telling her she had just six months to live. When you're given six months to live, you decide how you want to live your life, Indy tells me. So she revisited her passion for nature and set to work on her brand, Indy Lee. Indy's tumour was successfully removed on April 22, 2009, Earth Day, a day Indy describes as her rebirth. By the end of that year, Indy had officially launched her brand and today, over 10 years on, that brand is sold all over the world. No one can tell Indy's story like Indy can and hers is a story that will stay with me for a very, very long time. In this conversation, Indy and I discuss her belief in karma and how she refused to enter surgery with any loose ends, how it feels to be forced to step away from something you so deeply love, and her surprising first request when she came out of her operation. I've read that you had a plan or a checklist rather of what you wanted your life to look like from a very early age. But I want to go right back to the very beginning. What is your very earliest memory of beauty?
1: So there are two. Mm -hmm. One, I don't quite know my age, but I can remember my great-grandmother putting on lipstick and I can to this day still... In the recesses of my recesses of my mind smell I, I know I can remember that smell, you know what I mean of yeah. what it was, and the beautiful enamel lipstick cases that she had I mean they were truly this beautiful form of like art deco time you know era it was just so I have that vivid memory and then I have this memory, and gosh, you know, it was so funny. I must have been, gosh, 12 maybe, and just starting to get into makeup. And my mother bought me and put it in, I believe it was an Easter basket, it's, which is That's so awesome. funny that you remember these things. But it was this one-piece set, and it had, like, blush and two eyeshadows, oh. and it had, like, a lipstick in the case. Like, so when you opened it up, like, where the – um where the like joint was, right? It was where the lipstick went in. So it was this all-in-one compact and it was like this pearlescent pink and I can remember going to the bathroom nonstop to touch up my makeup. Now, gosh, only knows what I looked
0: like. <laughs> you would have felt like such an adult though. What a treat. But I,
1: rem- I remember this. Like it- it's so funny. I have vivid and I don't know if it's true, but I believe it was like a Cody compact. There you go. It's so funny that I remember that. I can remember the colours also. It's just interesting. This See, this is my
0: favourite question to ask because you no just... No one's
1: ever asked me it and I'm like, hmm. You end up tapping
0: into this strange part of the brain that's like, okay, so that's where the interest in beauty might come from. It's
1: interesting.
0: Interesting. So I've mentioned that there was something of a plan and I know that that included a beautiful home, two children, two yellow Labradors, a great job. Now that job ended up being in finance, but Mm -hmm. was that specific job always part of the plan? Was accounting always the field that you wanted to work in?
1: So the plan was exactly as you said. I was supposed to have um, two kids, a boy and a girl, the two yellow labs, check, check on that one too, um, a great job. Now, I originally went to school thinking I was going to take over the family business, but um, what was the family business? My father was a printer, a commercial ah, printer, and it was in the family. Like you know, uh, my it was my grandfather's, and wow. I was supposed to slide into that. And my uncles worked there, and an aunt worked there. And I kept saying to my dad, "You really need to digitize. You really need to bring in computers." And my dad's like, "Computers are a fad." Needless to say, FedEx, you know, Kinko's rather, which is now FedEx Kinko's, but Kinko's and everything ruled the world. And my dad's like, maybe, maybe you were right. (laughs) So the business went bust when I was in college. I'm like, okay, what's plan B? But I always knew I wanted business. And so my mom said to me, I could be a doctor, a lawyer, um, a teacher, or an accountant.
0: And then how did you land on accountant? Was it just like drawing it out of a hat?
1: Well, I knew I was never going to be a teacher because I didn't think I had the patience. A lawyer, I did not like, ironically enough, I was afraid to order like pizza over the phone. So I'm like, I definitely couldn't argue with anyone or publicly speak. Oddly enough, that's what I, I do for most. I know, it's so funny. And um, I can't stand the sight of blood. I faint. So I was like, well, there goes that. I'm like, well, I'm really good at, I'm really good at numbers. I knew I wanted to go into the family business, so I'll be an accountant.
0: Process Boom. of elimination.
1: Yeah. And I became an accountant.
0: So you completed your Bachelor of Science in Accounting at the State University of New York College. You take yep. an internship at Erston Young.
1: You're mm-hmm. then offered
0: a position there. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that time. Were you enjoying that role?
1: Um, I enjoyed having job security like going into like my junior or senior year like I was already offered the job that I wanted at the office that I wanted like it was unheard of unheard of
0: must be a great feeling
1: it was an incredible feeling and I was making money more than most people at that point um I even had a paid internship so it was you felt like I was a big girl you know what I mean like I was maturing and um I was really proud really proud of that accomplishment Uh, what I didn't realize that I, what I thought accounting was or what I was going to be doing wasn't exactly the same thing. I don't really know why I thought that, but you know, I think that's just any job you think, oh, I graduated. I could do everything. I had no idea. Um, I love the people I worked with. I love the experience, but I don't know that I love the hour. I know I didn't love the hours and um, I didn't feel like I was truly getting to see the entire picture. So I decided that I was going to leave it up to the universe and I said, okay, universe, if you can find me something in like international or fashion or beauty or something that I was really interested, I would take a look. And then I got a head a call from a headhunter I had already passed my CPA exam. So I was allowed to then go off and leave public accounting and still get, and get my certification. And the headhunter said, I have a job at HBO in the international department. And I said, well, that must be the sign. Thank you, universe. Interviewed and I was there for eight and a half, nine years and it was one of the most incredible experiences ever.
0: Wow. Now this might be a stretch, but were there any lessons that you took from that time that you find you're still applying to your work now as a brand founder?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um yeah. So at HBO, I will manage the International Finance Group and then I went on into the domestic revenue reporting. And so, such a huge corporation. And so, but part of the international was really looking at smaller starting to put HBO all over the world. So, I understand looking at a PL. I understand what people were doing when they were starting a company. You know, not that I was like setting up all these things, but it was just an incredible experience to get a true understanding and watching a business kind of grow from scratch to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to see all of it. And I think that was just invaluable experience about setting up companies and tax implications and stuff like that. And so when I left, I had just this incredible experience of running groups and I, ironically working remotely because yeah. think about it, I was an international, everybody was remote. So I was, who knew I was many years in the making. perfect.
0: Yes. Fully prepared,
1: fully prepared. Um, it was incredible. It was truly, and I got to travel the world. Yeah. Oh God. Travel. Remember that? Vaguely. (laughs) Vaguely. So it was honestly, it was just, I'm so grateful that I had this experience early on in my career to be able to travel, to be able to be with HBO and to help set up HBOs all over the world and and really get in on the ground level with that. Um, And then I went over to the domestic department after I had children and I was like, I can't travel like that anymore. And I realized I didn't really enjoy accounting and didn't enjoy it anymore. It wasn't filling my cup. Um, and so I just, and I had two small kids. You have, remember, I was in Manhattan during 9-11. Wow. I remember being in my office and watching the building fall.
0: Oh, I just had a full body chill.
1: Oh. And I remember not being able to reach my husband and my son was, you know, a newborn and I'm like, how are we like, what's going on? And so I don't know, you know, about a year later, um, a power grid went down and Mm -hmm. cut off all the power and we thought we were on, it was a terrorist attack again. And that's when my husband and I were like, okay, one of us needs to not be in the city anymore. Mm -hmm. And, um, I said, you're absolutely right. It's time. And I said, (laughs) Pick me, pick me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, after you've already decided that accounting isn't for you.
1: Yeah. And I I just didn't love it anymore. So I left and I did a little bit of career consulting, recruiting. And then um, I really wanted to spend more time with my kids too. So Emily was maybe a year old. Jacob then would probably be about four. And I didn't want to miss it. Mm -hmm. And so I left.
0: So... Being self-described type A, you didn't exactly slow down in the traditional <laughs> sense. Instead, did your homework? yes, I did because I had to. I had to look this up on multiple places because I was like, that can't be right. She's decided to slow down, and instead, you've built a seven hundred and fifty square foot greenhouse and put about a quarter of an acre under production. What mm-hmm. prompted that? <laughs>
1: insanity. Uh, by the way, did I mention for years I had a chandelier in it? I mean, come on. Oh
0: my God, uh, amazing.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I love gardening. I like to say that I have green toes, fingers, and nose. Love I got it. that from my father, who was an avid gardener and um, just incredibly talented. And I love it. And I love the feeling of my hand in soil and nurturing something and watching it grow. And I was starting to realized the importance of what we were eating and seeing the ties to health, et cetera. And so a friend of mine was building school gardens and I said, let me help you, let me run your nursery. And he said, well, we don't have one. And I'm like, not yet, let me do that. So I built the greenhouse. Oh, my family was like, why is there a tractor trailer here? Like what What kind of greenhouse God. did you get? I was like, oh, it's quite large. Oh, this- and then he's like, he's like well, where's this going to go? There's no flat land. And I said, Oh, the bulldozer's coming tomorrow. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, And I, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start your greenhouse and your nursery and provide you with the plants and go to schools and teach the importance of farm to table. But the funny thing happened was I wound up, you know, after like a few weeks in their office and before I knew I was more of their CFO than I was in the nursery and other people were in my greenhouse and I was coming home late at night. I remember coming home at one in the morning. I go, I haven't been in there. <laughs> like, what am I doing? I don't even like accounting. And I said, I've, I, I can't do this anymore. I will grow you plants. I will do whatever, but I need to get back to basics. And so I started just doing it myself and um, bringing local um, farmers' market vegetables and growing, you know, starter plants and herbs and some microgreens to restaurants and edible flowers to Whole Foods. And yeah, (laughs) I'm nuts. (laughs) I mean, it's all turned out for the best. Yeah, but I'm truly passionate about understanding where your food comes from and the importance of biodiversity and regenerative living soil, et cetera. And how if you have a good mix, you don't necessarily need pest controls, et cetera.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about the farm-to-table movement. You've just touched mm-hmm. on it. I'd love to hear more about what drew you to that. You've mentioned that you always had an interest in gardening, but was that always part of that interest or did that come when you were working with the greenhouse?
1: It came when I was working for the, with the greenhouse. Like I've always been interested in it, um, but it really, really – Brought the importance home, and you start to look at people like Alice Waters out in Berkeley, in California, and really bringing school gardens and teaching the importance of this to children. And you know, I had young kids who were like, "I'm not touching a carrot," but if they grew their own carrot, they would eat it. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh my gosh, this is this is something interesting," and teaching children. You know, it's like if you teach a child to fish. Or you, if you, you know, that kind of thing. But if you teach sure. them to fish, they'll live a lifetime. You know, if you give a kid a fish, they'll eat for a day. If you teach them to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. Well, if we taught children about soil health, how to grow their own plants, they are more apt to eat the vegetables. They understand the importance of one planet. Mm-hmm. And really start to look at the impact that this could have on, in an urban setting too, and help to help an underprivileged um communities on how we can help to bring healthier foods and information to that. So it was really fascinating. I, I love, 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 love the experience that I had.
0: Now, unfortunately, that experience did have to come to an end in around summer 2008 if research yes. serves when you were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which of yep. course meant that you couldn't work in the greenhouse anymore. Nope. How did that time feel? You loved it so much. How long did it take to come to terms with this idea of okay now i actually have to slow down
1: i was so frustrated i love Mm -hmm. this question and nobody's ever asked it so thank you truly thank you for asking that i'm honored by it because it was very frustrating um it's interesting yesterday i did a live on instagram and we talked about body positivity and i you know was brought back to that time where my body was not keeping up with what I wanted it to do and I my hands were all swollen I couldn't put on shoes my feet were all swollen I was in so much pain and I couldn't be out there in the humidity and I'm like oh my first of all I felt like a failure because yeah. here I was dedicating so much resource to this greenhouse like I, I literally turned over the entire backyard into this farm and this greenhouse and this is what I was gonna do and getting everybody like excited about it and I'm gonna be a farmer and and then all of a sudden I couldn't do it. And what is somebody who's a type A personality supposed to do with their life? Oh and by the way, your body is not doing what you want it to do. So there's a lot of frustration. Mm-hmm. Um and I was I was like i I'm, I could say I'm now angry at my body. <laughs> I feel like Jerry requires like I was angry at it at that point. Um <laughs> I was really frustrated and very, um, I wouldn't say depressed, but like, okay, what am I going to do? And once again, now I am woo-woo. I will admit I'm spiritual. Again, I go to the universe, like hook a girl up. Oh, and by the way, I also went, I was very lucky. I went on medication that really got it under control. So, but it was a form of chemotherapy. And so that meant wow. once a week I did not, I was really sick. Yeah. Um, you know, there are side effects of it. I was on that for four years, but I'm incredibly grateful to it because I was able to move on with my life too Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah I said I need a sign and my sister calls and says she's pregnant yes okay so let's talk about this because it was
0: your sister's pregnancy that prompted you to begin experimenting with natural Mm -hmm. skincare and with you know formulation science what did you make and how did you even know where to start
1: yeah, So my sister Joelle says I'm pregnant. And I said, Oh my gosh. Now I had done so much research on the organic food movement and the farm to table and what we're putting in our body. And I started to understand a little bit about toxic load and then it's just not all tied to food and understanding lack of regulations here in the U S and I didn't want anything potentially harmful on my nephew soon to be nephew, tushy or body. Yep. And I didn't want my sister to be using anything harmful on hers if there's absorption. And so I made her a belly bomb. I made a massage oil for my nephew. I made a tushy bomb for his bum. Um, and some arrowroot powder to be like a, like a cornstarch powder, like a baby powder, but doesn't have any talc in it and stuff like that. And I was using calendula that I grew way too much of. And I had about 12 different types of lavender growing in the backyard and I harvested it. And I was like, okay, let me use these in making this products. And I unveiled them at my sister's baby shower as a gift to her. But remember what I said, type A personality. So Mm -hmm. I learned how to use illustrator. And I bought a professional label (laughs) and I made, God, I'm nuts. I made little (laughs) miniature sets for everybody at her shower. Amazing. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, you should create a line of like children's products. And I was like, no, (laughs) I remember going, what are you, nuts? No one's going to buy these. Clean wasn't on the scene, you know? Well, yeah, 2008, and it certainly wasn't in the children's market. And I was I like, not, what are you talking about? No, that's that's nothing. I, you know, I'm a CPA. I got to do something big. I, I don't know what I was thinking. And um, Universe, once again, said you're not listening to the signs.
0: Yeah. So then it gave you one hell of a sign. October 2008, you notice your vision is decreasing. You visit yep. the doctor November 4. Mm-hmm. You're told that you have a brain tumor, which I, I mean, I can't tell you what you were thinking, but if I noticed my vision was going a bit off, I'd be like, well, this is purely related to my eyes and nothing else.
1: I, you know, I had a feeling I, it wasn't, it wasn't a complete shock because I was like, okay, what could it possibly be? You know, it was only out of one eye. I, it was peripheral. I mean, I'd done some light Googling, and I was like, I'd like, and, but I went to him and I said, something's up. And he immediately said, you need to go get a scan. And 45 minutes later, he called and he said, you know, come in. And I'm like, well, tell me what's up. And he said, no, you need to come in. And that's when, you know, there's something serious. And I said, tell me, otherwise I'm going to some heavy Googling. And I said, I have the keys in my hand. I'm, I'm getting in the car. What is it? And he said, you do have a brain tumor. And I said, I'll see you in 15 minutes. <sighs> and... um. I didn't call anybody. I didn't call my family. I called nobody. And I just got in the car. And as you've, you know, you've done the research. It was the most transformative day of my life. Transformative.
0: I mean, what a, what a perspective to come out of that with. Talk to me yeah. about that. I read that everything kind of came into focus after that yeah. doctor's visit. I would love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, it came into focus actually in the car ride. So the 15 minutes in the car was literally the most powerful moments of my life. Now, wow. I always say this. I have two beautiful children that I gave birth to, one that, I, that I'm blessed to be raising. And so I'm, they are the highlights of my life. But powerful was driving and realized here I was, a self-prescribed type A check the boxer. I had spent the first 37 years of my life checking off the box of what I thought I needed to accomplish and was a passenger in my own life and not an active participant. And that was the wake-up call. And as I'm driving, everything is becoming more vivid. Everything is coming into focus. The greens, the oranges, the reds, because it was the fall. And I realized that this was happening for a reason. Didn't know what, but it was going to, something powerful was going to come out of it. I didn't think it was going to be the end of me. I truly didn't. Um, and more importantly, I promised myself from that day forward, I would live every day with passion, every day with purpose and every day try to maintain some semblance of being present because I do believe that's where the magic happens. And here I am like 13 years later and I have lived every day according to those three P's.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: Wow. My pleasure.
0: So you'd been told that you may only have six months to live. You'd also mm-hmm. discovered this passion and you felt that you'd found your calling. Yes. Could you talk me through the timeline here? I know that you yes. had surgery to remove the tumor on April 22nd, Earth Day. What are the yep. chances?
1: But uh, you, again, yes. I, I did not choose that day. It's the day before my daughter's birthday. I definitely, when the doctor said I had you know, less than a 50% chance of waking up. I did not choose that day. But when the doctor said we're doing it on this day, I was like, okay, again, the universe is sending me a sign. So timeline, yes. Um, okay, so diagnosed on November 4th, 2008. Somewhere mm-hmm. probably in December, January, I started to visit, you know, all these November, December, January, started to visit all these specialists and get a whole wide range of diagnoses. And all of them agreed this was not cancer. Okay. But one doctor, a neuroendocrinologist, I said, how is this possible? He said, we're seeing more and more of these things tied to the environment. Of course, I'm pointing out to the very large greenhouse <laughs> that is sitting vacant in my backyard. And he said, well, that is part of your environment. So it's what you're breathing. So is what you're putting on your skin. And I was like, boom, the light bulb went off. That was my awakening. And I said, oh my gosh, everybody said I need to create a line for my nephew. This is much bigger. Mm. And I realized and I knew that, here in the U.S., laws really haven't substantially changed since 1938. There's very little regulation. You need to be your own watchdog. And by the way, I'm an 80-20 girl, so don't think I'm one of those people who like, you cannot touch that. No, I'm not that way at all. I just like to, know, I like to know the risks so I can make my own choice, and I knew that I wanted to create a line in that doctor's office when he said it could be something as simple as what I was putting on my skin. And I said, okay, I want to create a line that is safe, I wanted to be effective. I wanted to look beautiful on a shelf because at 2008, 2009, clean beauty looked like mashed avocados in a jar that most people got at a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it is now. Um, Dr. Hauschka was available, a horse from Aveda, certainly. Tata Harper was starting to, at the same time as me as well. So it was starting to bubble up but I knew my role was also to educate and empower others to live their healthiest version of their life. So I wanted to start having conversations with people so they can make decisions and not learn that something could happen. And they didn't know that they had some power over it. And so I started when you're given six months to live, you get to decide how you're going to to live your life. Yeah. And I decided that when my kids are at school, I was going to deep dive into every book I can. All those colorful books on my bookshelf behind me. Um, I was going to deep dive into every book on on clean beauty, natural cosmetics, of the skincare industry, the beauty industry at large. Um, you know, like getting, I mean, anything I could do. Aromatherapist, naturopathic, homeopathic, dermatologist, everybody I could. And also at the same time and find a doctor that would give me a different diagnosis and prognosis because I knew this was happening for a reason. And um, I would start mixing in my kitchen. And then when my kids were home, I was with them. And I walked into surgery on April 22nd. I said, today's a great day to live. Put on some kick tush. Okay, use a different word, music. (laughs) Um, Hopped onto the table and went to sleep for many hours. And when I woke up, I was able to see completely again and that's when the doctor came in and said we got everything welcome to the rest of your life
0: wow oh so you've you've come out of surgery welcome to the rest of your life oh my god that's powerful
1: Yes. Ooh. I asked for a scotch and then he said, no, you can't, you can't have alcohol." So then I said, how about a frappuccino? He's like, you're not, you're not eating or drinking for a few days. No. I mean, I had, I had all these leads all over me. I was in neuro ICU and here I was like, Could I have a scotch? How about, how about a <laughs> scar? I'm like, congratulations, something. He's like, you're going to have an IV drip.
0: Oh, <laughs> so. Not quite as punchy as a scotch, unfortunately. no. no. <laughs> So how did you feel other than, you know, devastated that you can't have a scotch nor a frappuccino?
1: (laughs) Um, Euphoric, I guess is the good. I mean, I was probably on a lot of drugs. Um, I felt like I was reborn. I think that's the best way to say. So before I went into surgery, I really closed all ties with everybody so that there were no loose ends. I mean, I went as far as speaking to ex-boyfriends from high school. Like, uh, yeah, I was going to go into this, that if some, if this did not go the way that I thought of it, there would be no loose ends with anything that doors have been closed. I had taken accountability for anything that I might've done in my life. Like, even though I was a goody goody, like all those things, I just wanted to have good karma and good energy and good energy with everybody else. Like, I love you. I've lived an incredible life. My children will be my legacy, like that kind of thing. But I knew I was gonna wake up. So I wanted to wake up with all of that cleaned up and I had this incredible life ahead of me with all this beautiful energy. And so when I opened my eyes and the doctor said, I was like, it's go time. I am reborn, let's, let's go. And I really believe my healing was so quick because I was in such incredible space. Wow.
0: How I mean on healing, how long did it take before you felt a hundred percent and it could have that scotch you'd asked for?
1: Um, I think I got my scotch probably six weeks later, but it wasn't actually no, no, not bad. Um, I in fact, I I know I had good food probably a week later because my friends brought in like. I got a Ravlox, escargot, like French food from one of my favorite yes. French restaurants. And they like packed it up so nice for me to like, it. it was so sweet. I like those incredible memories. But I would say it was probably, I would say two, three months before I was like really where I was like, I can move the same way. Cause I had to be really careful because I had like, you know, healing holes, like all yeah. on my spinal cord, you know, cord. So I had to be really careful um, uh, about any relapses, et cetera. But I was pretty much at it. I, I will tell you four hours after I woke up from recovery, I called the person who was working on my website and I said, let's turn it on in a month. Yes. I love this. He's like, he's like, did you not have the surgery? I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. Mm. And he's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in neuro ICU. (laughs) He's like, and I can remember my mom going, she's definitely sedated. <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, I was like, I was so happy. I was yeah. so happy. I had my life. Nothing was going to derail me.
0: So where do you go from here? You've obviously called the guy that was working on your website. It's one thing to have this great idea and this newfound passion, mm-hmm another thing entirely to start a brand. So how did you find a manufacturer, source packaging, decide on which products you were going to launch with? There's a lot that comes into play.
1: Yeah. So I launched the website in a month and my mom bought, my aunt bought off of the website. So it wasn't like that commercial where everybody then buys and you have all these orders and you're like (laughs) super successful at all. Um, I then got into one store, like that was a co-op. And then I realized I can't do this myself. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I was very fortunate when my best friend um, introduced me to one of my business partners, and she knew about sales and marketing, and it kind of just grew into okay, who can help me with this? who can help me with that And she got into stores and then I was introduced to someone who can help us with creative by the way he's now my creative director years later and um, we just were started at people laugh because I collect people, and I realized that I couldn't make this in my house because for a while I was making it myself wow. and And then I realized, okay, I've got something here. This is resonating. I need to have this made professionally. And I was turned on to um, a contract manufacturer who was able to take my initial concoctions and, you know, recipes and uh, uh, they're called formulas, but mine were so basic. (laughs) So I think there were more recipes and then turn them into, you know, very much what is shelf stable and do the stability testing and lot testing and do that and do it in- you know, an FDA approved lab and things like that. So that was really important. If I was talking about safety, that that happened. And I will tell you, he is still manufacturing for me today. Like, again, yeah. I keep people and we've grown. And it was one step in front of the other. It was not like all of a sudden, boom, there was this massive growth. It was, we joke that we got to the first million the hard way. It was literally one boutique at a time. And then in and. 13, 14, we rebranded because I said I was eco-chic. I was eco-eco. But that's what happens when you have to buy stock bottles and you have to put labels on and not silkscreen the bottles. And, you know, you couldn't afford it like a true graphic part, like all those things. And we decided we were going to spend money on getting silkscreen and changing the look to be really that chic, beautiful look that I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I knew it could look like. And Nick, my creative director, he nailed it out of the park. And... We were on Shelf and Bendles on um, Earth Day of, I think it was like three or four years later. And that's when things really started to hit. And then like the likes of Sephora, not Sephora, um, Saks and, and um, Anthropology started calling. And yeah, it was, it was just incredible to see. And press started saying, oh, who's this brand? And oh, did you hear her story? So it was, it was really an exciting time. Wow. But it was a lot of work by a little amount of people and it was basically taking every dollar earned and put it right back into the company.
0: You obviously had this pre-existing passion for nature and of course a great team around you. This in mind, what were your non-negotiables when it came to the formulas?
1: Um, you know, there used to be something called the Dirty Dozen. That was Mm -hmm. the first, like, right when this first started coming on the scene. And I would say that was a non-negotiable. It was Dirty Dozen. Um, It was also cruelty-free, leaping bunny, making sure that no animals were harmed in the process, um, both on the ingredient side and the final product side. Um, Even in the packaging, okay, we were using glass. um, We were using you know, forward stewardship, guild paper, um, vegetable based inks and things like that was really very important. It was okay. Stewardship of the earth. But of course we didn't. We Well, I'd like to say we were thinking about sustainability. What was available then and what is available now is a very different, is very different and sure. is continuing to change. Um, but it, it started out that way. And the other thing that was important to me was effective products. Mm-hmm. It had to look beautiful, but it had to work. Otherwise they buy it once and never again. And that's not about creating a legacy of change, which was what my hope was to do.
0: And how did you land on the name? I know that Indie Lee is a pseudonym for Independent Lisa, which is now your legal name. Yep. And was also the name of the blog that you started. Mm -hmm. How did you land on it, both for the blog and for the brand?
1: So I, when I first got sick, Mm -hmm. Um, I am very blessed. I have the most incredible family. Um, and so one side of my family wanted to do prayer chains every day on the phone for hours, hours. And then my mom's side, the Jewish side wanted to do like the, and like, let me connect you to my, my cousin's friend. Who's an eye doctor who might know somebody who's a podiatrist. It was like this weird thing of how it works with Jewish geography and your, your, you know, parents and aunts and stuff. (laughs) And I was like, guys. If I'm dying, I want to spend time with my kids, but I understand and love you. And I know you guys want to be a part of my life. So I will blog about it and I will keep you up to date so you can read the blog and what's going on. But please respect that right now. I just want to be with my family. And so I was like, okay, well, what can I name the blog? And I said, well, I want to strive to keep and gain independence. So I'm going to call it Indie Lee Independent Lisa. I love and I. That's what I blogged under. And then when we started the company, it was first called the botanical collection. That was another name that nobody could pronounce because we thought it was made French and it made no sense. And Everybody said, but it's you and your story. That's what we love. It's really about you, but your name is awful for a package. Mm-hmm. And they said, what is your maiden name? I will never forget this. I was like, Oh, if you think my made if my marinade's bad, my maiden name of Sven Gross is not something you want to have on a beauty package.
0: It's not super on brand, is it? No.
1: So, <laughs> so, so they're like, well, you're gonna change your name. I'm like, what? Change my name? And I was like, like Lisa Mills? Like, what are you talking about? They're like, I don't know. We need to start to think about this. And I said, well, I blog under Indie Late, and they're like, oh my God, that's your name. There it is. And I changed it. And so funny because it's more me. Than Lisa ever was.
0: Isn't it, but it funny does. with
1: names? Yeah, but it's so interesting because that suited me mm-hmm. before surgery, before I got sick, and before that drive to the doctor where everything came, that was me. Passive, didn't take risks. I was always optimistic. I'm a Buddhist, so I, I've, been optim- I've been a practicing Buddhist for over 20 years. So I was always optimistic, but I wasn't take charge. And now, once I got that diagnosis and I was in the car, my life completely, like, it changed. It was like I just made a turn and I went down a different path and I became this completely different person. And Indy is who I am. Mm -hmm. Joyful, optimistic, perspective. What can we learn from the experience? It's not a failure. It's a lesson. And that's how I live my day. I'm sure drive my family and my team nuts.
0: It's interesting that you're practicing Buddhist. That explains wanting to, um, you know, wrap everything up yeah. sort of nicely prior to surgery. Yeah, yeah. Makes I mean, there's
1: – exactly. And having that faith that something bigger is out there and yeah. that can carry you through. And I think that optimism and that gift that Buddhism has given me allowed me to get through surgery the way I did – um, and be so positive when I woke up. All those things played into the healing process as well. I truly believe that. And um, a year after I was diagnosed with, uh, after I had the surgery, I was diagnosed with the second tumor. And this, I didn't know. Oh, see, oh yes. There we go. So the first one was called Herman. This one's Hermione. Oh my God! You named them. Of course I did. I <laughs> had uh, Hermione after the heroine and uh, Harry Potter. And you know it. I was like, Oh my gosh, I have another one. Are you kidding me? Like originally I thought it was something that gave me somebody else's results. And they're like, no, this is the second one. I'm like, okay, okay, I can get through this. I've gotten through the other one. And I decided that Herman was to point me in the direction of where my life was supposed to go. Hermione is so that I never get complacent. And so I plan to live a very long and beautiful life with Hermione and stay the course of growing this business and creating change and, helping people realize that you can live passionately and with purpose, even if you are given lemons, you can turn them into limoncellos. And I really believe that was Hermione's purpose. But last year, I made the decision that I really didn't need her anymore. And I told the doctor, I'm getting rid of the tumor. Like, it's, it's going away. He's like, that's not possible. We just don't want it to grow anymore. And I said, no, I'm, I'm ready. I think I've learned my perp- I've learned it and I'm not going anywhere. I'm continuing the course. And so I did a lot of a lot of optimism, a lot of work, a lot of whatnot. And um, last July, when I walked out of the, you know, 24 hours after walking out of the MRI, he calls, he goes, I I don't even know what to say to you. I'm like, yes. He's like, it's shrunk. It's shrunk." I'm like, of course it is. He's like, I don't have explanations. And I said, you don't need them. But I do believe that faith, that optimism, that hope, there's no other explanation.
0: Yeah. It's a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you launched the brand 2009, 2010, you've mentioned Mm -hmm. these huge, huge retailers that picked it up, but Uh am I right in saying that you started selling it in like markets?
1: Yes. We are now global. Yeah. That probably happened. So I was really lucky again, universe. I said, I can't do this anymore. I was making no money. Um, I had children who were now thinking about college, right? (laughs) here we are, you know. Uh, You know, this was 2016. And I said, I can't do this. We cannot do this. I need to start making money. I need to start paying back some debt. I need to put kids through college. I need help. Otherwise, I cannot continue this anymore. I couldn't scale the business like we were. And I said, okay, universe, I need help. And I got a phone call. And um, from Lori Perella Krebs and she's introduces herself and says she works with a private equity firm, blah, blah, blah. tells me a little bit about herself. Would you be open to a conversation? Now I get calls all the time. People saying, Hey, I want to help you grow. I have, the, I'm from this firm. And I, I just always was like, nah. And I don't know what it was, but I felt in my gut that little, that little thing. And I said, I'd love to talk to you. And she said, when are you available? And I said, how about now? And. Here we are, a year after that, um, she they invested in me. And Cora Holdings invested in me. And that was May of 2017 and um, have been able to scale the company. As a result, are now, we're now able to say that we're in, you know, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Singapore, Korea, <laughs> Malaysia, Thailand, Canada, <laughs> um, you know, Poland. Um, my gosh. France, UK, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable that we are now sold throughout the world like that. Middle East, oh my God, we just launched in the Middle East. It's just like, what? But I could never have done that without the knowledge and what the Encora team brings. I don't want it. I never want to pretend and say, oh yeah, I did that all myself. No. I knew I needed money and I knew I needed people who understood the business and knew how to do this properly And I knew I was getting out of my league. And so that's what Encore brought to the table.
0: And how has that changed the way that you're operating things?
1: Well, I get to focus on what I love now. I get to Mm -hmm. focus on, I would say I'm very involved with communication. So, you know, PR, I love, I'm like the total geek. I love digital marketing and e-com and, and things like that and I love um, the creative side of things and getting more involved with you know obviously the obviously with the products and stuff like that. But I don't have to worry and think about like the financial side and the supply chain and the sales and how this is all working together in concert. That's really what Encore brings. And it's been beautiful for me to feel like I gained a business, business partners, but also mentor. I will say like Lori's been a business partner, a mentor, um, a friend. I'm really, I know not everybody has this experience when people invest in you, but mm. I'd like to think that I'm probably one of the luckiest people out there.
0: I would love to hear more about the product development process. How long does it take from, I imagine it varies from product to product, but how long does it generally take from conceptualization through to the product being available to consumers?
1: I You know, that really depends on the product, to be yeah. honest with you. I mean, you could take something like squalene, right, which I brought out I think in 2011, and it's one ingredient. So it was ma- just a matter of finding the right, you know, extractor and where we want it because it was for me it had to be sustainably sourced and i knew i wanted it from olives and where it was being grown indigenously so it but that was just it once we found it it was like okay what's the vessel not very difficult to bring to market right that's a mm-hmm. that's a thing then you have things like you know maybe our Superfruit facial cream, which might have gone through, you know, seven iterations and what, you know, what peptides do we want to use and what is the texture that we love and having to go through stability testing and patch testing, all that, and then finding the right component tree that it works with, with its viscosity. So that could take a year. It could take nine months, you know, but don't forget, it's got to go through all the safety testing. Mm. And so that takes a long time depending on product, etc. So it can take anywhere. Sometimes it can take, you know, a very short period of time in terms of three months, like when I did Squalane, because it'd already been tested and all that has been done Yeah. versus something where it could take a year, a year plus, because you're just not happy until you get the right formula that you say, okay, this is what I feel comfortable that our name is going on.
0: Mm-hmm. As far as conceptualizing those new launches, are you Constantly thinking about what's next, or are you working off consumer demand, or
1: is it a combination of
0: both of those things?
1: It's a great question, and I would say a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, for example, a restorative eye cream that came out because I cannot tell you how many different people said, "India, when are you coming out with an eye cream? When are you coming out with an eye cream? When are you coming out with?" Okay, I get it. You want an eye cream, <laughs> so it's that, but it's also what interesting ingredients are coming to market, what makes sense. If you take a look at our product lineup, what what gaps do we have that we want to fill so that we feel that we have a product for everybody? So it's a combination of everything. And then things that are changing in the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, new ingredients are coming out, new technology. Clean chemistry has changed so dramatically from when I started in like literally 2009 to, to, to now. I mean, here we are, what, 12 years later. I mean, it's so significantly different. So, you know, it, it's, it's an evolution.
0: Let's talk about that over the last 12 or so years that you've been sitting at the helm of your brand. What have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry?
1: I think the availability of ingredients as well as the manufacturers who are willing to work with you and understand clean. Um, I'm truly, again, a blessed when I think about the investment that we have and the know-how because we have gone through Cosmos certification Mm. so eco So soil association because for me it was really important and for the brand to have that third party validation on what we stood for and so cosmos which was the global of like soil association eco cert etc that umbrella but really getting that gold stamp which really is going from farm to face so it's going from how things are um, Distilled or the, the, how they were farmed, and then how they're extracted to the manufacturing process. The manufacturer has to be Cosmos because certified, which means their cleaning practices. Like it's great if you have a clean product, but if they're throwing you know, toxic things into the yeah. water, so you need to think about that all the way through the componentry. So I think that's a really big shift that we're seeing, right? Chemists who understand and embracing this, and that I also think that what used to be a trend right? Or it was a fad. People said, oh, we'll see if this works. It's now it's mainstay. Like it's not going away. Mm. And I think that now we're looking at it where people realize you don't have to sacrifice efficacy for a clean product. Yeah, You're getting just as effective, if not more now done clean. Um, I'd like to see less fear mongering in the industry because I think people like to use that as like why you have to. For me, it's a choice. Yeah, I was going to touch on that because none of your collateral
0: feels that way. It's just like, okay, this is what's in the products. This is what's not in them. You decide.
1: That's it. You make, this is, who am I to dictate? Who is any of us to dictate yeah. what is good? Like every person's threshold and choice is different. And I don't have the right to, to dictate that to anybody and what their choices are. And so what I would like to do is educate and empower you so you can make a decision that fits for you. I happen to want to create clean products right? based upon what happened to me. I want you to be educated so you can make a decision. Sometimes you're going to use clean and conventional. But what's so interesting now is that what used to be mainstream retailers are now their wellness and their are clean and however they're going, everybody calls it different things. We're seeing them in mainstream retailers. So like the Sephora's of the world, the Ulta's, Nordstrom. Neiman Marcus, Blue Mercury here in the States. You've got, then you've got these retailers who are dedicated to clean, like the, the Oh My Creams in, in France, the Credo, Aaliyah, Follain, Detox Markets in, in the U.S. So you've got, it's really interesting to see. So I think that's been a real big difference. And then this concept of sustainability and regenerative and the understanding of this is the only planet we have sustainability is keeping status quo we need to think about how are we adding to and not taking from so i'm very excited to see how that's going and then the more sustainable practices in terms of componentry we're not there yet and people have to understand this is a much bigger conversation than just pcr mm. it's like okay well how are we going to recycle it is it is will the component work you no know, pumps typically that are not virgin plastic, don't work as well. You're not going to be very happy if your pump doesn't work after four uses because it's PCR. So it's thinking about those things, um, which I'm really excited with.
0: So those are some of the changes that we have seen and are seeing. What changes do you think we can expect to see from the industry over the coming few years?
1: I think you're going to see more of that. I think, again, the, the term is going to go more to regenerative and sustainable Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see more mainstream brands embrace clean chemistry because they no longer have to sacrifice and law of demand, supply and demand prices are coming down because we're able to get – you know, um, ingredients because there's more of a demand for that ingredient. So I think you'll see that. Um, I think you'll see some mainstream, large companies, of course, the acquisitions of cleaner brands so that they can have them in their portfolio as well. And I think you're going to see this worldwide, um, effort of having, you know, mainstream retailers have offerings of, of this. And my hope is that we're going to eventually get to a point where there's a little bit more, um, and a collective in green agreement of what clean means because what is clean for one retailer is not clean for another retailer. And I, I'm hoping that with the certifications like Cosmos and whatnot, we're going to start to see a theme and some consistency. My final question, what's huh. next for Indie Lee? Well, I would like to think of vacation when I can travel.
0: <laughs> Wishful thinking.
1: Um, I, you know, I think for the brand, it is continued distribution, like growing distribution. So that is available for more people. Um, I want it, I want brands and products like mine to be available at the everyday level. I mean, I'm very, I'm very thoughtful about our price points. We're very thoughtful about our price points. I've always said, I don't think you need to sacrifice your paycheck for healthy skin. Um, so I think I know distribution, right? Increasing distribution outlets. I would love to see more brand awareness too. I think that's important. And I really want to start speaking more. I mean, for me personally, it's getting out there more and sharing my story because there's still so many people who don't know why I'm so passionate about what I do Mm. and also empowering people to be joyful and um, what wellness means and be mindful about their choices and about their life and, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's a lot more of this story for myself and the brand. And my hope is that this year and going forward, there'll be more of that, more brand awareness as a result of me feeling comfortable to step up step up to the mic.
0: That was Indie Lee, founder and CEO of Indie Lee, which you can find on Instagram at Indie underscore Lee. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at watts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.